0: The very reason jesus was able to give himself away to others and accept both their applause and their rejection was because he was completely grounded in his identity as god's beloved son
1: a great thought about jesus and his knowing his identity fueling his work for us on earth but what about you? How does your understanding of your identity affect your work, your vocation? This is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Happy Fourth of July weekend. I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio. Gabe has the week off. After all, it's a holiday weekend. Well, this year's Independence Day weekend is quite different from last year because then we're in the midst of that pandemic. Last year, we seemed to be in survival mode as many lost their jobs due to COVID-19. But now the economy is reopened and many businesses are anxious to hire people. And yet, even with all the hiring, there are people leaving their places of work. Maybe you've heard of the great resignation. Many people are reevaluating how they're not just earning a living. Many are thinking about how they are investing their lives. There seems to be a search for significance, for meaning and importance in what we're doing here. And at one level, this is really good. But is there something deeper than just finding meaningful work, especially if you're a Christ follower? Does our identity in him compel us to something more important, a vocation? On this week's Q Ideas, we're going back into the archives to listen again to two messages to help us better understand vocation in the light of our identity in Christ. Back in 2018 at the Q Conference that year, one of the speakers was author Sky Jathani. His message that year was, work for the common good. What Sky did in this talk is to help us understand the purpose of God's plan for the world and how he's designed us to find agency in our vocation. And when we understand how to apply the gifts he's given us toward what God is doing in the world, we can see amazing things happen. So just sit back. Let's listen again to that talk from Sky Jethani.
0: My name is Sky, which admittedly is uh, an androgynous name, and when combined with my ethnically ambiguous appearance, raises a lot of questions for people. <laughs> the truth is, Sky is not my name. My father is an immigrant from India, and my given name is Akash, which is a Hindi name which in English translates to Sky. I didn't know that was my real name until I was about 10 years old. My mother is American from mostly Scandinavian background, which explains my middle name, which is Charles, shared by my my Norwegian grandfather. I mention this because when I was 18 years old, I made a decision to go out of state to a large university, which provided both an opportunity and a dilemma. The opportunity was, it was a chance for me to finally get rid of this nickname Sky that I hated and construct a new identity for myself. The dilemma, though, was which name would I use? Would I embrace my uh, otherness and call myself Akash, my Hindi name? Or would I try to assimilate and fit in as much as possible and use Charles, my English name? I mention this because it illustrates something about the way our culture thinks about identity. We believe that identity is constructed by the individual, that it is a matter of personal choice. And as a result, the process of determining our identity can cause a great deal of anxiety. Now, I'm not here primarily to talk about identity, but to talk about vocation, our work. But there is a very distinct link in our culture between identity and vocation. Right after what is your name, the question you're most often going to hear is, what do you do? I was filled with anxiety as an 18-year-old trying to figure out my identity through picking a name. But for many of us, we face anxiety around picking an identity by choosing our vocation. For example, a number of years ago, a college student came to me, he was a second semester junior, which is usually when they start freaking out, and he said he wanted my help figuring out what to do with his life. His name was Brian. And I said, well, what do you think you're supposed to do? And he said all of his life he'd wanted to be a cardiologist, and he was a pre-med major getting very good grades and probably could get into medical school. And I said, well, what's wrong with that? And he said, does the world really need another cardiologist? And I thought, if I'm having a heart attack, yeah, the world needs another cardiologist. I said, well, what do you think you're supposed to do? And he said, well, I wonder now if I'm really supposed to be a missionary. And again, I asked why. And he said, I really want my life to count. I want to do something that is significant. Brian came to me thinking his dilemma was one of vocation, but it wasn't. The reason why he was paralyzed by this decision of medicine or missions was because behind it, he was really asking a question about identity. He thought that his entire life, his value, his significance, his identity would all be determined by this one decision about medicine or ministry. You see, in our culture, we bought into this narrative That your vocation is your identity, and your identity is a matter of personal choice. Therefore, the choice of vocation determines everything about you. And this shapes us to think that our vocation, our work, is really about us. It's about my identity, my value, my significance, my fulfillment. In a way, our culture has made us into vocational narcissists. Consider the research of uh, Dr. Brad Bushman at Ohio State University. His team of researchers found that college students get more pleasure by having their self-esteem and identity boosted than they did from sex, alcohol, or money. He said that a self-esteem encouragement, a boost to your sense of significance, was more potent and powerful than any other pleasure they measured. That helps us understand, at least in part, why so many of us are drawn to work that we think will help us change the world. That social activism, that we think will transform the culture around us, but in fact, there's a subterranean motivation going on. On some level, we know that if I choose that kind of work, if I have that kind of impact, it will actually make me more significant, me more valuable. My identity strengthened my significance higher. That means vocational narcissism may be just as prevalent with a social activist as it is with a stockbroker. It means that a pastor could be pursuing his or her work with the same desire to increase their value as an ambitious politician. We have bought into this idea, both inside and outside the church, that vocation is all about me. And what I want to suggest to you is that if we really want to work for the common good, if we want our vocations to be a vehicle through which God's love is manifested in the world, we first have to debunk this cultural narrative of vocational narcissism. So going back, when I was 18 and a few months away from going away to college, wrestling with what name am I going to choose, I finally sat down with my mother, who's American, and asked her, why on earth did you give me a Hindi name? And what she told me changed everything. When my parents met, my father was already a widower. His first wife in India died at a tragically young age from cancer, and my older brother was a product of that first marriage. So he's 100% Indian and therefore is darker than I am. And I knew none of this when I was a little kid. I thought, honestly, that his skin was darker than mine because he used to drink Hersey syrup right out of the can. (laughs) But when my parents met, my brother was about two years old. And my mother, by her own admission, said that she fell passionately in love with that little boy, not just his father. And so when they got married, my mother legally adopted my older brother, and he came already with a Hindi name and a nickname, as many Indian kids did. And so when I was born a few years later, she said that she gave me the name Akash and the nickname Sky, not because she particularly liked those names, but because she didn't want her older son to feel odd or different in the family as being the only one with a non-English name. And as she told me that, it changed everything. Because I realized for the first time that my name was a gift, a gift not given to me, but a gift given by my mother to my brother. It was a manifestation of her love for her adopted son. My name was not about me. Similarly, we need to have our assumptions about vocation challenged. As Christians, we do not believe that vocation is something you choose. It is something you receive. It is given to us by God, not for our benefit, but for the benefit of the world that he loves. Scripture tells us that our work is not a reflection of our identity, but God's. And the manifestation of our work is not for our love and benefit, but a manifestation of love toward our neighbor. Paul says in Ephesians that we are to work with our hands, not to fulfill our needs and desires or self-esteem or ego, but we are to work with our hands so that we have something to share with others. In other words, ordinary work is a manifestation of Christian love. Your work is not about you your work is a gift from your heavenly father to your brothers and sisters in this world but if we are going to make the shift from vocational narcissism to vocational generosity it begins by putting our significance and value in something else when jesus was baptized and the voice of the father spoke and declared this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased god was declaring both jesus identity my beloved son and his value i am well pleased And he did that before Jesus had preached a sermon, before he had performed a miracle, before he had overcome temptation in the wilderness, before he had called a disciple, before he had gone to the cross, before Jesus had done anything with his public vocation, he was already established in his identity. Henry Nouwen reflects on this event and says that the very reason Jesus was able to give himself away to others and accept both their applause and their rejection was because he was completely grounded in his identity as God's beloved son. Likewise, if we truly want to give ourselves away to this world and use our work as a vehicle of Christian love rather than to bolster our identity and significance, that we first must have our identity grounded in that same truth that we are a child of God, holy and dearly loved. We talk a lot about common good, cultural flourishing, using our vocations to help others, and those are good things. But if we truly care about work for the common good, then we must begin by putting our identity and our significance not in our work, but in the one who has called us to it.
1: Well, thank you again for joining us this 4th of July weekend for Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Gabe is off. I'm Paul Perot, And that was Sky Jathani. His message, Work for the Common Good. He delivered that during our Q 2018 conference. Remember, this and a lot of other great talks are always available to you as a Q Media subscriber at QIdeas.org. The topic of vocation has long been part of Q because our work is not just about what we do for us and our fulfillment, but rightly viewed is our gift to others and our community. Case in point to how long we've talked about the issue of vocation, let's travel back to 2011, to the Q Conference that year. Steve Garber of the Washington Institute joined Gabe and the team to talk about how our work is integral to the well-being of our communities and the world. Let's listen to a portion of that talk.
2: Vocation is integral, not incidental, to the mission of God. If we get the mission of God right, brothers and sisters, we will understand why vocation is where we began. If we miss on the mission of God, we'll miss on the meaning of vocation. And it will be a thousand times in a thousand places one more reason that people assume that PhD students in engineering disciplines who are also serious Christians shouldn't be talking about technology. Second, signposts. To get at this, I want to talk with you about signposts and about being signposts. And to do that, we need to remember Walker Percy, the great American novelist and essayist. He was not a romantic for a moment. In fact, the New York reviewers who began to read his work critically finally said, we have our own Camus. We finally have our own Camus because he was somebody who looked wide-eyed at the hurt and the wound and the brokenness and the sorrow and the complexity of the world in which we live. The second coming, the Syndrome, Love in the Ruins, on and on, apocalyptic novels, writing about the state of the soul in American life in the modern becoming postmodern world. Towards the end of his life, he published a series of essays. It was called Signposts in a Strange Land. It was not only what Percy himself was about, but I would say in some ways, friends, it's what we're to be about, signposts in a strange land. Several years ago, I spent some time in India, traveling through the south of that that country in the state of Kerala. If you ever have been through there, you have seen, like I've seen, banners over every street marked with sickles and hammers and characteristic memory of the Maoist and the Marxist visions, which still is being debated in the state of Kerala. I was watching this, thinking about all this. I found myself thinking, so how did the communists get this right? How did they get it right, in fact, that the very ordinary work of human hands, sickles and hammers, somehow is bound up with the very meaning of history? Somehow almost transcended, actually, a marker that, in fact, the things you do with your life in the most ordinary ways, in the most ordinary places, the sickles, the hammers of human experience all over the world, that somehow this is twined together with the very purposes of history, fundamentally a lie about the human condition and history. And yet somehow, more than we do, I would say, they got that part right. It's a signpost. Signposts? Well, a few weeks before Kerala in India, I was in Beijing. I've been asked to give a lecture at the Beijing Film Academy. An Amazing experience to step into this world where people coming from all over this grand, grand country of China, invited by the government to become the next generation storytellers through film and cinema. I spoke on good stories and good societies, trying to address, in fact, what I saw their own vocation to be there as undergraduate and graduate students, but also the responsibility they bore for the future of China and in many ways for the rest of the world. Good stories and good societies. I was arguing for, of course, a relationship between the two, that you can't get to be a good society unless you've got good stories at the very heart. But of course, that begs the question, what is good, really? And so I took up an image from Walker Percy himself An argument that he makes that bad books always lie. They lie most of all about the human condition. You see, these people will be the storytellers for the 21st century in China. And I had a deep sense, really, that in fact the work which they would be doing would be creating signposts for who China is going to be over the next generations and decades. Signposts in a strange land. I have four good stories to tell you, four hard stories, and more stories about signposts though. These are the conversations of my life. My friends, Jenna Lee Nardella and Todd Deathreager are here this morning. He'll be speaking to you over the next hours. I serve on the boards of both the Bloodwater Mission and the Telos group. Bloodwater, of course, exists to address the need for clean blood and clean water in Africa. It's very, very, very complicated work, and very, very difficult work. It's not work that's done easily really talking to Jenna now, who I've known for most of these years of her 20s. I've come to hear her say, in fact, that one of the hardest parts of the work is that most of the time Africa doesn't love her back. And so what's she going to keep doing then? How will she keep at this work which is complex and difficult and yet so very important? When, of course, the very reason she does it in some ways is not responded to with, good job, Jenna, we're so glad you're here. If my friend Jenna does Work in Africa, my friend Todd does work in the Middle East. The Telos group exists to address what seems to be an almost intractable problem, really. It's a tremendously difficult question. How is it possible somehow to be for the Palestinians and for the Israelis at the very same time? You see, it's a vision, a work, a message that mostly the church and the world does not want to hear. And so to argue for both at the same time, it's awfully, awfully difficult work. Seemingly intractable, actually. But if those are friends of mine in the NGO world, I've got friends who aren't here today who work in the marketplaces of this life. I wish they were beside me. On this one side, I'd introduce you to Hans Hess, who five years ago decided, in fact, to create a better hamburger. Wouldn't we all like to have one, really? (laughs) But the tagline for Elevation Burger is this. Ingredients matter. Ingredients matter. Theological students from... The best seminaries have come into his store at my invitation to talk with them about vocation. They've wondered, where are the Bible verses, Hans? What's Christian about this store? Ingredients matter? Why? To whom? For what? You see, grass-fed, naturally produced, organically imagined, hamburgers, but also French fries fried in olive oil, which, in fact, really makes its way through your stomach much, much better than five guys ever will do in this life. My friend Hans thinks ingredients matter. And people are buying into this idea all over the country and the world. Five years ago, it was one store in Falls Church, Virginia. Now there are almost 80 franchises sold all over the country. On the other side here is my friend Evan Loomis. Evan spent the last several years of his life pouring his heart out, traveling across the country back and forth, trying to find the capital funding to bring into being what he calls a Whole Foods version of Home Depot somehow to address not only today and this year, but his children and grandchildren's life as they live it out in generations beyond him. There are people, you see, who are trying to take this idea that vocation is integral to the work of God in the world and give concrete meaning to it in life. Signposts, each one they are. And yet, sometimes our best shots at being signposts miss, don't they? Sometimes we will be misunderstood, even tragically. Have you seen of gods and men? A story set in Algeria in the 1990s of a group of monks living in a monastery who interact deeply, personally, with great, great affection and love and passion with the community of mostly Muslim people around them. The push and shove of the realpolitik of this world, as the days pass, their own decisions are more clarified, their own loves become more uh, understood by them. And they decide, in fact, to be a signpost of a responsible love for the world in the midst of a place which, in fact, doesn't really care. It's not a happy story at the end. In fact, though at the same time, it's a story of amazing hope. In some ways, the story makes no sense to us, and it only does if we can see our vocations as signposts and we offer ourselves to the world in hope. So how will we do this? how we become signposts in a strange land. First of all, we must commit ourselves to a theological imagination that makes sense of who we are and how we're to live, especially to understanding the meaning of vocation is integral, not incidental to the missio dei. We need a theological imagination that's rich and true enough to push back away from every dualism, from every effort to privilege the sacred over the secular, the not-for-profit over the prophet, of saving grace over common grace. The paradigm has to change, friends, and we need the theological grist running through the mills of our minds that is able to do that. I have a question for you. If this is our theology, why don't we pray it? Why is it that the communities of Kerala understand that the work of our hands is deeply woven in to the meaning of history by their banners proclaiming that the work of human hands matters to what history is all about? And yet, we as Christians don't pray as if that was true. When was the last time that architects and builders, teachers and librarians, doctors and nurses, artists and journalists, lawyers and judges were prayed for in your congregation? We could do that, you know. We need to keep praying for the young life staff and the Wycliffe Bible translators, we need to also pray for the butchers and the bakers and the candlestick makers. Remembering that most of what God is doing in the world is being done in and through the vocations of his people. We need to commit ourselves to an over the shoulder through the heart learning that will grace you for the rest of your life. This kind of apprenticeship in life gives us eyes to see that a coherent life is possible. And so our second question, what are you doing to address the challenge of the valley of the diapers? The years between 20 and 40 are hard ones as they are the ones where we sort out who we are and how we will live for the rest of life. What is it that will matter to you? What will we love? And because the stakes are so high, we need teachers who can show us that words can become flesh, that worldviews can become ways of life. How we take us up as a community here? A third commitment, a third question to be a community of folk who would together embody things that matter. If we're going to be common grace for the common good, we need each other deeply and desperately. We need each other. And so a third question, who and what are you committed to? Every Wednesday morning, I meet with Todd Dethridge and Mark Rogers, neighbors, both of whom who are here. We have a standing appointment with each other, trying to work out a common life together. Wendell Berry is right about this, you know. We critically need to belong to a people who work out their vocations in a place. People and place matter if we're to hold on to our humanness. In fact, if we're to hold on. To a person, we are people who long for the world as it ought to be, who long for the world as it someday will be. To a person, we are people who live our lives in in that tension, giving ourselves away to God and history hoping that the world will somehow be different because our frail lives are in fact woven into the Missio Dei, that our vocations are honestly and deeply integral to the mission of God in the world. With Mumford and Sons, we sing, sigh no more, longing to find a love as it ought to be, longing to live and love as we ought to be.
1: Again, some great thoughts there from Steve Garber of the Washington Institute on our work and its importance, its ministry to our neighbors, communities and the world as many are reassessing their work lives post-pandemic hopefully these two talks added an important godward perspective for you steven had more to say but we only had so much time however remember you can watch both of today's talks at qideas.org on the q media platform if you're not a subscriber remember you can request a free 30-day trial membership so you can watch both skies and steven's talks and so much more. Again, learn more about becoming a Q Media subscriber at qideas.org. Well, thanks again for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. On behalf of Gabe, have a great Fourth of July holiday.